and welcome to Buffy and the Art of Story Season 4. If you love Buffy the Vampire Slayer and you love creating stories or just taking them apart to see how they work, you're in the right place. Today we are talking about Season 4, Episode 10, Hush, where the gentlemen come to Sunnydale and steal everyone's voices. I am Lisa M. Lilly, novelist and founder of writingasasecondcareer.com. If you enjoy supernatural thrillers or traditional detective novels with smart female protagonists, you can check out either of my series first books free at lisalilly.com slash free. As to Hush... In particular, we'll talk about how this episode is more like a classic horror story than is most of Buffy, telling a story without dialogue, and the way the very strong theme infuses the plot and all the subplots. I'll also include commentary from writer and director Joss Whedon throughout and some extra at the end about the theme, the introduction of Tara, and other insights into his choices to do this type of episode. Hush originally aired on December 14, 1999, and was written and directed by Joss Whedon. The opening conflict foreshadows the Buffy and Riley conflict to come and also relates directly to the main plot. Professor Walsh is lecturing about communication not being the same as language, and that there are thoughts and experiences that we don't have a word for. She asks Buffy to come up to the front of the class for a demonstration. She has Buffy lie down on the desk and calls on Riley to help, telling him to be a good boy. He puts his arms around Buffy, who says this feels strange, and Riley tells her, don't worry, if I kiss you, it'll make the sun go down. They kiss and the classroom gets dark and is suddenly empty. So something I did not pick up on that Joss Whedon mentioned in the commentary, he wanted a lot of people there for the kissing scene. If you look again, you'll see that it is not just that all the seats in that classroom are filled. The aisles are filled with people sitting or standing in them. He wanted a sense of a giant crowd watching Buffy and Riley who have never kissed before. So the classroom is empty and it is dark. Buffy hears singing and goes into the hall. At 2 minutes 19 seconds in, she sees a little blonde girl with long hair who is holding a wooden box out in front of her and is chanting or singing a rhyme about the gentleman. And it includes the words can't even shout, can't even cry, can't say a word, and ends with need to take seven and they might take yours. Riley joins her, puts his hand on her shoulder from behind, but Buffy turns and it is a scary looking, very slender guy with a skull-like face and metal teeth. Buffy wakes up. She's in class. Willow teases her about falling asleep by telling her Professor Walsh shared everything that would be on the final. 
Riley joins them on the way out of class, and Willow excuses herself to go to her Wicca group, but she follows them at a distance, excited for Buffy as she sees the two of them flirting. Outside, Riley asks what Buffy's doing that night, and without thinking, she answers patrolling, and then amends it to petroleum, which puzzles Riley. She asks what he's doing, and he says grading papers. They keep talking, and they're getting closer and about to kiss, but Buffy stops and says, what papers? They only have the final left. Now Riley looks awkward, and he says, late papers. And now they both need to get to class, so they head in opposite directions. We're at five minutes, five seconds in, and we go to credits. So somewhere around here, I would have expected to see the story spark or inciting incident that sets off the main plot. Usually, it comes around 10% of any story. And in Buffy, that's been pretty reliable until this season. Here, it's been a little bit harder to pick out, has come at different spots. The first lines of this episode give us our theme about communication versus language. And I wonder if that's a part of a real lecture the professor gave that Buffy fell asleep on, or was that only her dream lecture? Anyway, that sets off our theme, but doesn't really start our story. Buffy sees the little girl at 2 minutes 19 seconds in. That's pretty early for a story spark, and it does give Buffy information that she'll need. I don't know that it really sets the story going. It could be when the gentleman, the first one, puts his hand on Buffy's shoulder. So that is her first awareness of the monster here. So we could see that as the story's spark. The Buffy-Riley subplot, on the other hand, has a pretty clear inciting incident. And it's the moment when they don't kiss because both are distracted by talking and specifically about their questions about the other person who is, in fact, lying, though neither of them knows it. We return from the credits at 6 minutes, 4 seconds in. Giles is on the phone repeating the rhyme, and he says it sounds vaguely familiar. He then tells Buffy that her dream could be prophetic or just the eternal mystery that is your brain. Giles gets off the phone, asks Spike, who is in the kitchen, if he's heard of the gentleman. Spike says no, but it's not clear if he might have and he just doesn't feel like being helpful. He complains that they're out of Weedabix. He likes to crumble it into his blood sometimes to give it texture. At 7 minutes 13 seconds in, Xander and Anya cross the courtyard outside Giles' apartment and they're arguing. Anya feels Xander is using her because he doesn't care what she thinks or ask about her day. And Xander responds, you really did turn into a real girl, didn't you? Anya answers, see, and you make jokes during my pain. You don't care about me at all. Xander says he does, but he struggles to answer when she asks what she means to him. As they enter the apartment, Anya says all Xander cares about is lots of orgasms. And Xander says, okay, remember how we talked about private conversations? How they're less private when they're in front of my friends? Spike says that's all right, they're not his friends, so go ahead. But Giles says, please don't. Anya says this is important. And Giles says, yes, but why is it here? But Xander tells him his mom told him Giles wanted him to swing by, and Giles says, oh yes, 
but he wanted them to come over in the evening so that they could take Spike for a few days. He has a friend who will be visiting and they want time alone. And Anya says, oh, you mean an orgasm friend? And Childs says, yes, that's exactly the most appalling thing you could have said. They all argue and we cut to the Wicca group. A young woman, her eyes shut, says a dramatic prayer that sounds very mystical, but she finishes and jumps right into talking about the bake sale because she makes an empowering lemon bunt. They then all talk about the newsletter. Willow suggests this is all interesting, but what about other things like the wacky notion of spells, conjuring, transmutation? The others scoff at that, and one makes a joke about getting on their broomsticks. Tara, this is the first time we've seen her. Her head is down a little, but she looks up and starts to interject, and the others speak right over her. Until a long-haired girl holds up her hand and tells them all to be quiet, she says Tara has a suggestion. I never am quite sure if this girl is being sarcastic by saying Tara has something to say, acting like she's giving Tara the floor, or if she is really trying to make sure everyone takes part. Either way, Tara shakes her head and doesn't speak. But she and Willow exchange glances and smiles, and it's clear that both of them thought that real spells would be a good idea to talk about. This is a wonderful example of unspoken communication. Their expressions and gestures show how Willow and Tara connect despite not saying anything. At 10 minutes, 11 seconds in, we cut to Buffy and Willow in the dorm hallway. Willow is telling Buffy that it was all talk, Gaia, blah, blah, moon, blah, blah, blah. Buffy says, no actual witches in your witch group? And Willow says, no, bunch of wanna blessed bees. Buffy says she's sorry. She knew Willow wanted to go further with her spells. And Willow says she just wanted to float something bigger than a pencil, which is a nice callback to season three when Willow staked a vampire with a pencil. And it also tells us where Willow is now in contrast to what we see later when she and Tara are trapped by the gentleman. And we've seen it's not that Willow doesn't have any power because last week her spell was very powerful, but it didn't do what she wanted and she didn't even know it was working. And she'll reference that later when talking to Tara. Willow asks Buffy how things are with Riley, excited for Buffy, but Buffy says whenever they're together, she gets nervous and she starts babbling and then he does too and it's a babble fest. Plus, Buffy has to lie each time she talks to him. She wishes she could just come clean. At 11 minutes, 23 seconds in, we cut to Forrest telling Riley, well, he can't, as Riley's obviously just said the same thing that Buffy did. They walk through the initiative in their camouflage gear. Forrest says it's the burden they bear. They have a gig that would make any girl living think they're cool, and they have to Clark Kent their way through the day. But Riley says Forrest doesn't understand Buffy is special. And Forrest says, you think she's special. Wow, the first 486 times you told me it didn't register. But now I see that you think she's special. The scene ends as they get in the elevator and Riley says his name for the vocal code recognition. A nice cue 
setting up the later scene where this doesn't work. At 13 minutes, 53 seconds in, we cut to Xander. It's nighttime and he is tying Spike to a chair. Spike doesn't see why he's doing it. Giles lets him stay without having him chained up. Now that it's clear his chip is working, and he tells Xander he's not interested in biting him even if he could. Xander, though, says he happens to be very biteable and he doesn't want Spike free. They bicker. Once the lights are out and Xander is quiet, Spike imitates Anya. Xander, don't you care about me? We never talk. Xander tells him to shut up and Spike keeps saying, Xander... We cut to Giles. There's a knock on the door. It's Olivia. They exchange a few words about her flight, the traffic, the baseball movie on the plane, and she says, that's enough small talk, don't you think? They kiss. Giles takes off his glasses, and the camera pans to where he drops them on a legal pad with lots of handwritten notes and a square drawn around the words, the gentleman. We are past a quarter way through the episode or even past a third of the way through. So sometime before now, I would have expected to see the first major plot turn. I think of it as the one quarter twist because in most books and movies, it comes about 25% through. It spins the story in a new direction, but it comes from outside the protagonist and it raises the stakes. And I feel like instead of that, here what we got was almost a thematic statement with some minor plot shifts over about four minutes bookended by strong nonverbal communication. So here's what I mean. That four minutes starts with Tara and Willow in the Wicca group scene, and the group is not addressing Willow's issues, but Tara and Willow notice one another and bond over spells without speaking. Then we shift to Willow complaining about all the talking at the Wicca group, blah, blah, and nothing going on. Buffy makes a similar complaint. She and Riley keep talking, 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 and they don't kiss, and they're both lying. Then Riley essentially has the same conversation with Forrest. Then we go to Spike mimicking Xander and Anya's talk or argument about him not caring about her, which comes from not communicating. And then we go to the other bookend. So we started with how Willow and Tara connect without words. And we see Giles and Olivia. And Olivia specifically calling out enough small talk. And they kiss. And you could argue there's Willow and Tara and then Giles and Olivia have the best communication and it is all nonverbal. At 13 minutes, 14 seconds in, we see this beautiful giant clock tower, kind of creepy. These gentlemen open that wooden box that we saw in Buffy's dream, and there is whispering in the background, and we get shots of different people sleeping, including our core characters, Giles and Olivia, Buffy, Willow, but also a number of just different people that we won't see again. And as they exhale, these white plumes leave their mouths, kind of swirl out into the air. And this is the gentleman stealing everyone's voices. And we pan back and see all the swirls together above Sunnydale. And then one of the gentlemen looks very pleased. So this is our first major plot turn. 
obviously from outside Buffy, taking the story in a totally new direction and raising the stakes. And in the commentary, Joss Whedon said when planning the episode, he decided Act 1 would be typical with people talking and everyone would lose their voices at the end. And then Act 2 would be no dialogue. So we are seeing the three-act structure here. Also, a quick production note, Joss Whedon said that cutting to all those different people sleeping and losing their voices, that normally they don't do that on TV because it's it's expensive and involved. You need a lot of additional actors. You need to build sets for each of those bedrooms where we see people, and you need to light each scene, and each one only lasts a few seconds. So he said it is very rare to be able to do that. And there were a number of comments he made, I won't share them all, about the production here requiring so much more work and effort and time and how everyone was exhausted, but they were all really excited when they finished it. So it is more clear in this episode than in last week in Something Blue that Buffy is the protagonist, both of the gentleman plot, the main plot, and the Buffy Riley subplot. And then we have all these other subplots that revolve around people who are stuck not communicating or just in how they navigate their relationships, which the main plot then directly affects. This may be the best intertwining of plot and subplots that we have seen this season. At 14 minutes, 37 seconds in, we cut to the next morning. There is no background music at all, so every sound is louder. Uh, A footstep on the floor, a door creaking. Buffy is in the bathroom. She brushes her teeth. We hear a girl in the hall crying. And on the DVD, Whedon commented that this showing of Buffy coming out of the bathroom stall, brushing her teeth shows the mundane so that when we get to the scary part, it is that much more striking. So at 15 minutes, 23 seconds in, Buffy walks into the dorm room and she says good morning to Willow, but there is no sound. She tries again, looking a bit panicky. When Willow talks, Willow mouths to Buffy, I've gone deaf and holds her ears. They both try yelling, No voice. Buffy looks in the hall. Now lots of students are out there essentially doing the same thing. We cut to Xander, who is frantically trying to speak, and he turns to Spike, who's still tied to the chair and also can't talk. Xander points to him and mouths, you did this. And Spike gestures, uh, a couple gestures in response, one which is basically, how could I, because he is still tied to the chair, and also, screw you. Xander calls Buffy's dorm room, which I love because she picks up eagerly and then sighs as she realizes she can't speak. On the other end, Xander does the same thing, and they both hang up. We cut to Riley's frat house. Everyone is having the same issue there. He and Forrest get into the elevator. The elevator shudders to a halt, and a computer voice says, vocal code not accepted. Riley tries to speak, but he can't. He tries breathing into it. He fumbles, trying to enter the override code, makes a mistake as the voice reads warnings about lethal countermeasures and yellow gas comes out of the ceiling. 
But they make it to the bottom where Professor Walsh looks very irritated and points to the sign next to the elevator in case of emergency, use stairway. On the DVD, Whedon commented that Riley and Forrest in the elevator show these guys thinking they are acting so rationally and they are in charge and getting it completely wrong in the face of an emergency. At 17 minutes, 56 seconds in, Tara walks into the student lounge. It's very quiet. Everyone's upset and someone drops a glass soda bottle and the crash startles everyone. The next scene is in downtown Sunnydale. It was so eerie to watch this right now because, and and this is probably true for many of you, but for most of the past year, when I have walked into downtown Chicago, it is so deserted because of COVID-19. So it was so odd to watch this happening on screen because lots of the stores are closed, though not the liquor store. Willow and Buffy walk through looking around. There's a guy just sitting on the curb holding his briefcase. A preacher or a priest is in front of a group who are all reading silently, and a woman holds up a chalkboard sign about revelations. And we also see a guy selling whiteboards and markers with a sign that says, Message Boards, $10. Willow looks kind of disgusted, But we then cut to her and Buffy entering Giles' apartment, each with a message board around her neck. And Whedon commented that this scene, the religious crazies and rampant capitalism, of course, appear whenever there is a crisis. Xander waves hi. He and Anya are watching the news. Giles touches Buffy's shoulder in reassurance. Willow eagerly takes off her board to write something, and it's, hi, Giles. He smiles and puts his arm around her shoulders. I feel like this is the closest we have seen our core characters this season, or it it is the closest they have felt to me. And I think that that cannot be a mistake and really fits the episode theme. Buffy sees on the legal pad the words can't even shout, can't even cry, and points to it, but Giles shakes his head. He hasn't found anything yet. Xander snaps his fingers to get everyone's attention. The TV news announcer says the whole town is quarantined for an epidemic of laryngitis. Some are blaming the flu vaccine. Some skeptics say it's a citywide hoax. Again, so strange, more echoes of COVID or foreseeing of the many different ways people react. The CDC has advised everyone to stay home and rest and won't let anyone out of Sunnydale until they can identify what's happening. Buffy writes a note saying Giles should keep researching and she needs to be in town tonight. He mouths why. And we cut to Professor Walsh. She is typing into a computer that then talks for her in a very stilted robotic voice and says, because there will be chaos. We're about 20 minutes, 38 seconds in. She tells the initiative guys to dress as civilians, to go in town and keep order, that a military presence would increase panic. But she still doesn't know what's causing it. She says they're working on it. At 21 minutes, 8 seconds in, Buffy is in town. It's night. She sees a fight about to start between two men. Riley is getting in between them. He backs off one of the men, and Buffy grabs a board from him as he's about to swing it, the man. 
and also maybe snaps his arm. Riley doesn't see that, but it does help stop the fight. Now we are at the midpoint, and here we usually see the protagonist make a major commitment, throw caution to the wind, or suffer a major reversal, or both. Here we do get a throwing caution to the wind for the Buffy-Riley subplot. At 21 minutes, 42 seconds in, Buffy and Riley hug. They ask each other, mouthing the words, if they're okay, and each says yes. Something shatters off screen and they both look around and it's clear they need to go and they start to turn away. But at 22 minutes, six seconds, they turn back to each other and kiss and now we get their theme music. This is followed by a major reversal in the main plot. Today we have some listener comments, but first, thank you so much to all listeners and patrons for your support, and especially those who emailed or messaged me in support of my decision to switch to releasing the podcast every other week. It turned out to be great timing because I got my second COVID shot and had a uh, A pretty bad day and night after. I was perfectly fine later, but it really helped to not have the added pressure of fitting in both editing one show and preparing to record and recording another. So to the comments, Roberta Lip, co-host of the They Coined It Mad Men podcast, she commented on last week's episode, Something Blue, And she says, the way you pull at the threads of the structure always reveals when an episode never quite got my attention. In this case, you've got two elements. The fact that you can't fully commit to who the protagonist is and all the character inconsistencies. There are so many of these episodes where either one character is altered or everyone is. This one specifically was going for some humor, and that was tough because of how creepy it was and how very upsetting it was to watch Giles go blind. But in this episode, more than any, establishing the characters as they always have been should have been key, most especially Buffy and Spike. These early episodes are why I always liked Riley. He was always a straight shooter and honest and putting it out there as best he could. And by the way, I like those last two lines. I think hers is consistent with the game she's playing and his always hits me in the romantic feels. So just for those of you who don't remember the last two lines of the last episode, it was where Buffy told Riley he had a lot to learn about women, and he said, you're going to teach me. And then Roberta talks about the other comment I made about not quite buying Buffy being so stunned that Riley called her beautiful. And Roberta says, "Uh, while the dialogue might have been clumsy, beautiful women react to hearing they are beautiful just as powerfully as well the rest of us. Years ago I knew a celebrity makeup artist. She talked about how Cindy Crawford would light up when someone complimented her and she asked her about it. She said you never really believe it and you always feel good to hear it. In Buffy's case she's hearing it from someone she likes and it makes her flutter and she made sure to say it so that he knew she was interested back. I love these comments, Roberta. Thanks so much. 
And pointing out the creepiness mixed with the humor does give that episode a sort of edge. And I can see why in some ways that that might not work for you. I was mostly okay with that. Though you pinpointed the one thing that really did affect me, which was Giles going blind. I didn't mention it because... That is a very uh, personal fear I've always had. I had some eye surgery when I was little and on and off have just had weird vision things. So that very much creeped me out, but I thought it was personal to me. I love your observation about beautiful, that, you know, someone who is beautiful still likes to hear that. And I, I think I probably discounted that. I do still have an issue with Buffy being sort of so blown away by it that she is just stunned into silence or loses track of the conversation. It it still feels over the top to me. Maybe I'm not quite buying that Buffy is that smitten by Riley at this point. Point, but it was great to hear that that worked and worked really well for you. There also are listener comments on YouTube from Raven Dark Author on What's My Line Part 1, the scene in the skating rink where Buffy and Angel are skating. They have to fight off this assassin and Angel is still in vamp face when Buffy kisses him and it's like he, he can't switch back to human and I had wondered why that was. So Raven Dark Author said, I always wondered if maybe Angel couldn't go out of vamp face at the skating rink because he was in pain. I think it's emotion-based because of other episodes where vampires go into vamp face when they're angry, seemingly unable to help it. Like later in season three when Buffy punches Angel until he changes in order to make him drink her blood and save himself from the poison. On the episode Surprise, so that is the one where uh, season two where Buffy and Angel have sex for the first time. And I had asked why in the warehouse where Spike and Drew are living there were these TVs hung all over the place. And Raven Dark author commented, there were a couple of references throughout season two that indicate why the TVs were there. But the one I remember off the top of my head is in Halloween, where Spike is watching the film of Buffy fighting when he's trying to study her moves as an adversary. I like to think he also had them there as security so he could watch the place inside and out. I also imagine that the party they had in this episode wasn't the only time he or Drew had other people over. And it's common for televisions at clubs and parties to be suspended above the guests so that they can watch the videos that go with the song that is playing or light shows or other interesting things while they mingle and dance. Or in this case, I guess, feed off the human dinner. So thank you. That is such a great point that I had not thought about. I was, I don't know why, I was thinking the TVs were there when Spike and Drew moved in. It makes so much more sense that Spike would put them up. We'll find out later. Spike loves the television. And I can completely see Drusilla throwing parties like this one that we see in this episode. I imagine she does throw them frequently. So that is a great explanation, and I love it. Also on the vamp face, I think that is probably it, that perhaps Angel's emotions are running so high that he can't turn, uh, turn back to his human face. 
So thank you so much for the comments. If you would like to comment on any of the episodes or Buffy in general, you can join the conversation on Twitter at Lisa M. Lilly, L-I-S-A-M as in Marie, L-I-L-L-Y, hashtag Buffy Story. You can go to the episodes on my website, lisalilly.com slash Buffy Story, or you can go to YouTube. You can either go there and look for my channel or use my link, lisalilly.com slash YouTube. And there is a Buffy and the Art of Story Facebook page, which is linked to in the show notes. The gentlemen glide out of the clock tower, and it is so eerie the way they move. They're not walking. They are just gliding a little bit above the ground. They wear very formal suits, but they have these creatures that usually go ahead of them, flailing their arms, kind of hunched over, wearing what look like um, straight jackets fastened in the back. I kept calling them the, the straight jacket guys. And then in the DVD commentary, we didn't refer to them as the footmen. So now I know what they should be called. At 23 minutes, 19 seconds in, Olivia wakes up and she gets out of bed, looks out the window and goes downstairs. So I have to correct something in an earlier episode, spoiler section, I thought she and Giles slept in the ground floor bedroom, and that's why she saw the gentleman. But she walks downstairs, and she hears a sound, looks out a ground floor window, and sees a gentleman drifting by across the way. But then suddenly, one of them is right in her window, his skull-like face filling the frame, horrifying her. We switch to the gentlemen drifting through dorm hallways. They are communicating with gestures, choosing what room. Inside a room, we see this young guy sleeping. He hears a knock and gets up and opens the door. We're at 25 minutes, 36 seconds in. The footmen grab him and pin him to the bed and open his shirt. He tries to scream, but no sound comes out. The gents show their teeth in these eerie sort of smiles. And one of them takes a scalpel from a black medical bag and reaches down. And we hear a sound effect of him slicing into the college boy's chest. In the commentary, Whedon said he thought it made the gentleman scarier that they would not do menial things like grabbing people. So that's why we have the footmen there to do those sorts of things. He also said one of his favorite things about the gentlemen is how polite they are, that they are from a very Victorian era that he finds really creepy. And we'll see this when we switch to the clock tower. The gentlemen add a heart to a jar and there's a collection of them, and the other gentlemen applaud very quietly and politely. At 27 minutes in, we cut to daytime. Buffy slips into the room where the guy is dead. He's on the bed. We only see his bare feet and lower legs, but Buffy's expression tells us all we need to know about how horrifying it is. We cut to Olivia sketching the face she saw the night before another person who is super good at drawing. Giles brings in the local newspaper with articles about murders where the hearts were taken. He puts it next to Olivia's drawing, and his expression shows us 
he has made a connection. He goes to his bookshelf and takes out a book on fairy tales. We cut to the classroom with the auditorium-style seating. Giles turns on classical music on a boombox and starts a presentation with transparencies on an overhead projector where he has drawn pictures. This time he's not so good at drawing. They're, They're like stick figures and written out messages. There are a number of jokes based on miscommunications with the gestures. When they are talking about what the gentlemen want, Willow points to her heart. Xander does a gesture and mouths boobies. When they're talking about how to kill them, Buffy tries to mime she'll stake them, but she makes an up and down motion near her lap and without her stake. The others stare at her a bit shocked and she grabs the stake and does it again to show what she meant. A little bit of reality sacrificed here for the joke as I have never seen Buffy make that motion when she uses her stake. Through the slides and the gestures, Giles tells them the gentlemen are fairy tale monsters They need seven hearts, and they have at least two already. Giles tells them no sword can kill the gentleman, but the princess screamed once, and they all died. Willow takes out a CD and mimes dying from the sound with her hands over her ears, but Giles puts on a slide saying only a real human voice will work. With her board, Buffy asks how she gets her voice back, but Giles doesn't know. Then he puts up a drawing of a girl in a dress with a crossbow saying Buffy will patrol tonight. Buffy is not thrilled with the size of the hips in the drawing. Giles points to the others, holds up a book to say they need to research. We cut to the commandos, including Riley, going out this time in military gear. We then have a quick scene of Buffy alone patrolling in darkness and Riley doing the same thing and seeing the clock tower. We are now nearing the three-quarter point in the episode. This is where we usually see the last major plot turn. It should grow out of the midpoint and take the story in yet another new direction. And here I see it as being where the gentlemen start interacting directly with our core group, and specifically Buffy. But first, we have Tara in her dorm room. She's got a post-it with Willow's name on it on her book of spells. She takes it and heads outside. She's walking in a hurry. She wears a long skirt, which is narrow, and she trips and drops all her books. And in the distance behind her, we see one of those footmen so eerie the way he moves. And Wheaton commented that Tara's tripping and dropping of the books, that that moment is classic in horror, and it normally drives him crazy when they have girls do that in movies. But because it's so classic for this type of story, he included it here. And it it puts a finger on why this is not one of my favorite episodes. Many people love it. And looking at it for the podcast, I admire so much what is done here. I like the theme. It's a good story. It doesn't feel like Buffy to me. And I think this is why. Certainly, The show doesn't go overboard with the woman in peril aspect, and we always have someone in peril in Buffy. 
But usually we make fun of these kind of tropes, like when Buffy in earshot stumbled as the demons are chasing her and one comes up to her and is pouncing and she turns and is so ready to kick him and says, demons can't resist a run and stumble. But here we have Tara doing uh, the equivalent and it is for the horror effect. She does manage to gather her books and hurry away. We cut back to Buffy. She sees a gentleman glide by a ways off, but then one of the footmen pops up right in front of her and attacks her. Inside the dorm, Tara is pounding on different doors as the footman and one gentleman get closer. No one will answer the door. We see them inside afraid to come to the door. And Whedon commented on that. He said that people afraid to answer their doors or help shows society crumbling. Buffy fights off the footman. We switch to Riley, who goes into the clock tower. Footmen attack him. We're about 33 minutes in. The footmen attack him. Riley fights one off, but more keep coming. We go back to Tara. She's running upstairs, pounding on another door. We cut to Willow inside her room, half asleep at her desk, but she hears pounding and heads for the door. We switch to Tara again. Banging on the door, it opens, but it's not Willow, it's a gentleman, and Tara runs. At 34 minutes, 39 seconds in, Willow comes out of her room as Tara runs down the hall and into her, knocking Willow over. They're both on the floor, and Willow has hurt her ankle, which makes her more vulnerable, but together they get up and run. We cut to Riley fighting with more of the footmen. He's almost overwhelmed when Buffy bursts through either the door or a window and she joins the fight. She and Riley are fighting separately and they're not really seeing each other. But at 35 minutes, 13 seconds in, they have fought off their respective attackers and they spin around thinking they're going to confront another foe. He has his taser gun up. She has her crossbow. They point their weapons at each other and their eyes widen in surprise and we cut to a commercial. We return to the same scene. Buffy and Riley uh, recover quickly. They keep fighting. She swings across the room on a rope, which I think is really fun. And you see it dawning further on Riley that her strength and skills is so far beyond human. We cut to Giles' apartment. Spike drinks from the Kiss the Librarian mug, which he took from the refrigerator, and he goes into vamp face and gets blood on his upper lip. Anya is napping on the couch. Spike is heading over that way, drops something, bends to pick it up just as Xander walks into the apartment. Xander completely misunderstands. He sees Anya lying there, seemingly passed out or dead. Spike raises his head in vamp face, his upper lip bloody, and Xander thinks he's attacked Anya. He lunges for Spike, gets on top of him. He's punching him, and Anya wakes up and finally gets his attention. He lets Spike go. He's so relieved. They embrace to romantic music. Xander gives Spike an I'm sorry shrug and Spike grimaces in irritation or disgust or both. Anya looks so happy that Xander just flew to protect her. And Giles and Olivia, who walked in out of the bedroom just a moment ago, smile at seeing the two of them so close. 
Then Anya gestures that they should go have sex, and the two of them leave, and Spike Giles and Olivia all make I-didn't-need-to-know-that faces. At 37 minutes, 8 seconds in, Willow and Tara are running and eventually end up in a cafeteria-like area. They slam the door shut. The gentlemen are not far behind, so they try to shove a vending machine over to the door to block it, but it is far too heavy. Willow falls because of her hurt ankle, and they sit next to each other, and Willow stares at the vending machine, concentrating so hard, and it rocks, but it doesn't move. If you are enjoying the podcast and would like to see it continue, please post a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen, share it on social media, or just tell one friend who you think might enjoy it about it. Or if you'd like to also get access to bonus content, including a breakdown of the premiere of the series Angel, you can become a patron. I did a very bad job setting up the Patreon account, so the easiest way to get there is to click the link in the show notes or go to lisalilly.com slash Patreon. Tara realizes what Willow is trying to do. They join hands as these creatures outside bang on the door to get in. Tara and Willow turn their heads and the machine shifts across the room and blocks the door, just slides right over there. They're both breathing hard and looking at each other and they are safe. Whedon said that Tara and Willow moving the machine was meant to be a very sensual and powerful moment between the two women, though they hadn't decided yet where that relationship would go. But he called it a very romantic image, one of the most romantic images in Buffy, and said it's a very empowering statement about love, what two people can accomplish together. Now we are reaching the climax, the last plot point where the opposing forces have their final clash and the main conflict resolves. At 38 minutes, 23 seconds in, the fight in the clock tower is escalating. Two of the footmen grab Buffy. A gentleman comes toward her with a scalpel, but Riley shoots electricity out of his taser and knocks them away, his taser gun. Buffy gets free. As Riley's taser runs out of juice, he discards it. They both fight hand to hand. One of the creatures grabs Buffy and has her in a chokehold, but she turns and sees the hearts in the jars, plus that wooden box from her dream. Buffy pounds her hands on the surface in front of her to get Riley's attention, and there is a wonderful dramatic moment. He sees everything, and he swings the butt of his gun, but he smashes a jar with a heart in it and then looks to Buffy for approval. She is still in this chokehold. She rolls her eyes and mimes opening something with her hands. And now Riley gets it and smashes the box. White plumes come out of that box, streaming away from it, back into each of their mouths and out into Sunnydale. Buffy gets away from the gentleman, takes a breath, opens her mouth, and yells for a long, long time. The gentleman and the footman react in horrible pain, and their heads blow up. And I thought this was so symbolic. A woman yells, and the men's heads explode. 
Buffy and Riley look at each other and we fade to daytime outside on campus. So now we are in the falling action part of the story where we tie up loose ends and resolve subplots. At 40 minutes, 49 seconds in, Tara and Willow talk in the student lounge and Tara explains she was looking for Willow the night before because she thought they might be able to do a spell together to make people talk again. Tara has always practiced. Her mom had a lot of power like Willow does. Willow says she's not powerful. Most of her potions are soup. She talks about her spells going wrong. She's nothing special. But Tara tells her she is special and Willow looks so pleased. Giles and Olivia are on Giles' couch. He is holding her and asks her if this was her best visit ever. She tells him she always thought when he talked about witchcraft and darkness, he was being pretentious. And Giles agrees he was, but he was also right. It was all true, other than he wasn't actually one of the original members of Pink Floyd. Olivia says scary. Giles asks too scary. Olivia says, I don't know. But Giles' expression tells us he knows Olivia won't be back. Riley knocks on Buffy's dorm room door. They sit on the beds across from each other. And Riley says, well, I guess we have to talk. And Buffy says, I guess we do. But neither says anything. We get a shot of Riley about to speak. Doesn't. Same thing with Buffy. Then we get a long shot of the two of them opposite each other in silence. And we cut to credits. So Whedon said two things on the DVD about this ending. One, that it was the only way to end. Once we get our voices back, we stop communicating. And then he said that he should have cut on one of their faces so the audience was still expecting them to talk. That that long shot of them both in silence gives away that now they're unable to talk to each other. I think that works better for his point of we get our voices back, we stop communicating. Because otherwise you might think, oh, they just cut it and we're going to see this next week. So that is it for the breakdown of the episode. There are some more things from the commentary on why Joss Whedon decided to do this episode where no one talks. He said one thing he doesn't love about TV is a lot of it is radio with faces, by which he meant you have dialogue and the camera work is what's called over, over, two shots. So you see him, you see her, you see the two of them talking. And he always wanted Buffy to work visually and put a lot in the shooting script about that. And a Fox executive would always tell him he put too much in there. They were never going to be able to shoot it all. And he said it always was a real struggle, but he loved it when he got something really visual and visceral. Whedon loved it, not the executive. But by the fourth year of the show, he said he fell into this people yacking style of directing and he wanted to curtail that. So the idea idea of everyone losing their voices was a great challenge to tell the story visually. As to the theme, and I love this, he said after he outlined the plot, he discovered what it was about, that when people stop talking, they start communicating. And the ways that language interferes with communication because it's limiting. Once you say one thing, you rule out everything else. Also, we use language to separate ourselves from others and use it as white noise. 
So he said once he realized that was the story, he saw that every dialogue line was about that. And every scene is about language being annoying. For instance, Xander can't say how he feels. He's just not good at that. And Anya says inappropriate things because her language is too straightforward for other people, while Giles is always wanting everyone to shut up. And I, I, I really think you do see that throughout, which is why the subplots and the plot interweave so well together. In terms of creation, Whedon said he felt sure he would fail going into this, that he wouldn't be able to tell so much of the story without dialogue and that the audience would get bored or confused. He also thought going into the episode when he was planning to do this, that this would be the one where Buffy and Riley would have sex for the first time. But as they came closer to the episode, he realized it was too early in their relationship for that. It didn't feel right. So Whedon felt like he lost his crutch for the episode, the one thing he was sure would work without dialogue. And he came into it, he said, with real terror, which he said is a wonderful feeling because it means you're doing something new. And I love that advice from a creative perspective. Bringing Tara into the show, he said they created her as this very shy girl who falls for Willow fairly early. And that Willow now, as a character, was so much more at ease than she had been in high school. And she could take care of herself more. Before we would have Willow in peril, now Tara became that person who didn't quite know how to take care of herself as well, who was more uneasy, and they put her in peril more often. And Olivia in that episode, he said, also served that purpose. He also said they needed characters the audience would see as possibly expendable, raising the tension. And in this episode, both Tara and Olivia fill that role. Regarding the gentlemen, he noted how different they are from the sort of uh, monsters we usually see in Buffy. We have a lot of reptilian monsters. And he wanted to evoke real terror, like from childhood classic horror, and remind people what scared them as children, adding to my sense that this doesn't, for me, feel like a Buffy episode, Whedon was aiming for something different. And certainly I, I watched a lot of stuff like that as a kid, but it isn't what draws me to Buffy. So that is the last part of the commentary. And other than foreshadowing and spoilers, we'll do it for this episode. I hope that you will stick around. If you don't, Thank you again for listening, and I hope you will return next time, not next Monday, but the following Monday, for Doomed, where Buffy faces yet another apocalypse, and she and Riley do finally talk. And we are back for spoilers and foreshadowing. So there is quite a lot in here. Forrest's irritation with Riley about the 400 plus times Riley said Buffy is special. 
we will definitely see Forrest becoming increasingly unhappy with how into Buffy Riley is. And Buffy and Riley will revisit their lack of communication. I think it is the biggest problem in their relationship. And I find it so interesting that essentially there is a whole episode about this. Here, there's a reason they're not great at communicating. They are both forced to lie to one another, but we will see this recur where they don't share things that the other person needs to know. Roberta Lip had a little bit of a foreshadowing comment, so I saved it for here. She said, possible teeny tiny, tiny foreshadowing. Willow wants Amy to help strengthen her magic and later finds a magical partner in Tara. So that was from last week's Something Blue. In that episode, Willow made a comment about Amy has power that Willow would never be able to access. And it is interesting because then we have next episode where Willow meets Tara and together they do have such power. Also, Tara is telling Willow, you are powerful. And Willow does not feel that way at all. And this does foreshadow their relationship. Both of them feel seen and noticed by one another in a way that they don't with anyone else. And that will continue to be a theme with them. And the issue of who has power, not in the relationship, But right now, Tara is talking about she's practiced since she was young, learned from her mother, and Willow feels like the newbie. And later on, that dynamic will shift and Tara will say in season five that Willow's power sometimes scares her. So all of this is hinted at here, this connection they have with magic. And of course, their romantic relationship is very strongly foreshadowed and really begins in this episode. I feel like it's also foreshadowed that Tara will join in with the Scoobies in helping people because here she wants to see if she and Willow can do a spell to bring people's voices back. And she ventures out despite that there might be danger and Tara will continue to do this. That moment where Walsh tells Riley to be a good boy in Buffy's dream tells us so much about that relationship and foreshadows that she sees him as a son and also expects obedience. And I think be a good boy might be the last thing she says to him where she is a reanimated corpse and she is telling Riley to just sit there and go along with Adam. This episode also got me thinking about what is the metaphor for season four. I talked about that a a couple episodes ago. We don't have the high school is hell metaphor. So what is the metaphor here? And I'm starting to think it is how do you maintain your relationships when you still care about each other, but you're going in different directions and have different roles. And this is something that happens to friends and to family when young people grow up into young adults and specifically 
college is a great metaphor for that. We have Giles, much like a parent whose child grows up, goes away to school, doesn't need the parent in the same way. There's the empty nest syndrome. It's less common, in at least in U.S. culture, to see dads feel that way. More often we see moms feeling that way. But I love that Giles is struggling with that and and he's unemployed as well so that adds to it what happens when your role in life changes and how does it change your relationships and then of course we have willow and buffy are away at school xander lives in his parents basement but in a way this is like a family where one maybe the oldest child goes away to school and now you don't live with your siblings anymore It is a different relationship. How do you navigate that? Do you keep it going? I think the metaphor really is, how do you keep a group together when so many of the roles have changed? And I wonder if it is why we are seeing these ensemble type of episodes where it is not so much in this one, but last week in Something Blue, and a number of them this season. I've been saying I'm not sure who the protagonist is. It's not clear what the main plot is, what's plot, what's subplot. Is that part of that metaphor? Everything becomes less clear when the group roles are changing. Who is the leader in the group is different. Giles is not overseeing everything. Buffy is still the slayer. But it is different than in high school when everyone gathered in the library and rallied around her. So maybe maybe that's the metaphor here. And I, I feel like I didn't state that terribly clearly, but hopefully that made sense. I'd love to hear what you think on that. Back to Hush, the parallels in this episode between Giles and Walsh, the Scooby Gang, and the Initiative foreshadow later issues and themes of the season. So we have them working on the same things. Buffy and the Initiative are both trying to deal with this. Uh, People have lost their voices. How do we keep order? But Walsh is still trying to figure out the cause. And Buffy knows it very early on, almost as soon as the voices are lost. We also show symbolically this difference in their approaches. Walsh has got what would have been a high-tech computer at the time. We've got the elevator malfunction with the voice issue. We have the metallic robotic voice Walsh uses. And Riley has his teaser gun. And the Scoobies are using transparencies on an old projector and mostly gestures and expressions which bring them closer, make them more of a team, make them more effective. This foreshadows the conflict when Buffy and Riley start trying to work together. So that is it for the foreshadowing and for this podcast episode. Thank you again for listening, and I hope you will come back next time for Doomed, where Riley and Buffy come face-to-face with their secret identities, and the gang fights more demons intent on opening the Hellmouth. Music for this episode was written and performed by Robert Newcastle. Buffy and the Art of Story is a production of Spiny Woman, LLC, copyright 2021. All rights reserved.